in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all your lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today are my good friends and co-hosts here for a dealer's choice. We got Nathan Lutz here in Pittsburgh, PA. Nathan, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Russell. It's uh, back to being pretty cold, but you know what? It's always warm inside for movies. And uh, right across town, also in Pittsburgh, Chad Robinson. How are you doing, sir? I am super excited. All right. So before we get off going, what is the last movie you saw? Nathan, why don't you take this one first? The last movie I saw is actually from last week. It's Dread, the 2012 follow-up to Judge Dread, which was the movie that we reviewed last week. All right. Definitely check that one out. That was a fun one. And Chad, what about you? What's the last movie you saw? I watched the Finnish horror film Rare Exports, A Christmas Story, which is a very interesting horror movie where they can't capture Santa Claus. So check it out. Yeah. Christmas movie in February. You didn't get enough Christmas? I didn't get enough horror. (laughs) <laughs> all right and for me the last movie i saw was star trek 5 the final frontier from 1989 so i'm making my way through the tar the star trek franchise slowly was that the one with the whale no this is the one after the one with the whale this is the infamous possibly worst of the bunch depending on depending on where you are and that is definitely where i fall uh, the ratings at IMDb agree with you, Nathan, so that's not a hot take. So, I yeah. mean, I, I had fun with it still. I mean, it's, you know, is there any bad Star Trek movie for you, though? All of them except for Wrath of Khan. Wow. Really? Wow. I'm going to have to hold you. I'm going to have to hold Nathan back right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad uh, we're doing this remotely. I, I'm ducking some sci-fi fans right Heresy! now. Heresy! But, but yes, all of them except Wrath of Khan are bad. Man, Nathan wants to hit you with a Vulcan death grip right now. I will say, at least, at least, Wrath of Khan was was. Uh, oh man, this is a, this is a whole tangent that we should just not get on right now. Because, we probably shouldn't. Uh, we should. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to. We'll have to agree to disagree on this one and move forward. <laughs> <laughs> but I did see it. That's the last movie that I saw. So, what movie is it we're doing today, Nathan? Today we are looking at 1963, the first Pink Panther movie to come out. All right, that's right. The Pink Panther stars David Niven, Peter Sellers, Robert Wagner, Capucine, and Claudia Cardinale. It grosses $10.9 million worldwide, which I'm a little bit fuzzy on where the box office numbers are because if you go back past a certain year, they're not that available online. So if you know what you spot this came on, write to us on Facebook and let us know. So I'm not going to be able to tell you it didn't follow in the top 10. The number one movie from 1963 is Cleopatra. Starring that was that was an Elizabeth Taylor movie and uh, before she was crazy. Oh, she was still crazy. <laughs> she was crazy pretty though back then though too. So at uh, so you got that going for her. So IMDb gives the Pink Panther a 7.1. Rotten Tomatoes 
The critics of Rotten Tomatoes give The Pink Panther an 89%. The audience score is a little bit cooler at 78%. No awards to show for this one. Now, Nathan, had you seen The Pink Panther before? I had never seen the original Pink Panther before, but man, it's like stepping into an old piece of clothing to hear that theme. That soundtrack was absolutely something that I've played about a gajillion times in uh, middle school jazz band, high school band has come up, community bands do it. It's a classic. So you're familiar with the music, any from the cartoon at all, or just simply just the music? The only the only Pink Panther thing I've I, I've seen was the the uh, remake in uh what year was that actually that was in 2006 with steve martin yeah and and that was a very fun movie okay now what was it like coming back to where it all began in 1963 with the peter sellers version of the pink panther nathan this movie feels like it's almost but not quite but almost a parody of bond films it is so close yeah yeah i think there's some of that in there very surprising to me and it, it makes sense given some behind-the-scenes stuff that we'll probably talk about later. But this is not an Inspector Clouseau movie. This is very much a The Phantom movie about the jewel thief that it's about. So it's surprising. It's it's very surprising, and it's quite different than what I than what I was expecting. Interesting. And did you have fun with it, though? You know, it's a 1963 movie, movie, and so there are certain things that I had to try hard to ignore that would not fly today in a movie. And once you ignore those things, it's a it's a fun movie. It's it's a good bit of slapstick, good bit of uh, crazy plotting. Now, Chad, what about you? What's your background with the Pink Panther? Is this a new one for you? Yeah, the live action is definitely new for me. The Pink Panther exposure I had was through either the insulation or through the cartoon. So I, I was familiar with the cartoon. Doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the actual movie. You're right. The cartoon is surprisingly its own thing. Yes. Yes, but this was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I I like this type of comedy. It reminded me a lot of Clue that we covered a while back. So it, it had a lot of that just absurdity to it. So this was a fun pick. I appreciated it. Much like Chad, I was familiar with the cartoon of the Pink Panther, but I had not seen any Pink Panthers when Steve Martin's movie came out in 2006, I chose not to see it just because I'm kind of one of those people that when something new comes out and it's a remake and I haven't seen the original, I shield myself so I can take the original in first when I know it's the original. Sometimes I miss that. And I was really happy with this, and I'm really eager to see what the series goes beyond this, but I had a lot of fun with this one. And uh, I, I watched this one three times, actually. I, I watched this one way ahead of time, uh, knowing it was coming up, and... I had, a, I had a fun time with it, and it's, it's got to be one of those ones that I have to tell you, it's got great rewatch value. I'm enjoying it more with each watch that I have, and that is a trademark of a strong movie for me. So I do see some similarities to what Nathan's talking about with the, the Bond parody, as well as also borrowing some of the fun elements of globetrotting and just the, I don't know that it's, it's not an espionage kind of situation, but the crime jewel thief thing is close enough kin to that that I got a good vibe for that, and this is a really good time. So this one went down well for me. Excellent. Yeah. Now, I have to let all the listeners know that there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So if you have not seen 1963's The Pink Panther, don't worry. Check it out. Come out and enjoy this. We will be back after these messages where we will spoil this movie. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? 
you get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. All right, we're back. And if this is your final warning, we will be spoiling The Pink Panther. So, Chad, for those who haven't seen The Pink Panther since 1963, why don't you refresh people's memories? Yeah, we have a ton of those listeners that uh, saw this in 1963. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To those of you that saw it in theaters, good for you. Keep listening. Uh, A young princess receives a precious diamond as a gift from her father. That diamond is known as the Pink Panther due to a tiny flaw in its discoloration, but it also happens to be the largest diamond in the world. Twenty years later, her father is dead and she's forced into exile after a military coup. The new government wants the diamond back, but like any rich kid, Princess Dollar refuses to give it back and instead goes on vacation at an exclusive ski resort. Unbeknownst to Dollar, a jewel thief known as the Phantom has his eyes on the Pink Panther. That jewel thief is Sir Charles Lytton, an English playboy whose plans get interrupted when his loud American stereotype of a nephew shows up the same resort unexpectedly. Chasing the Phantom is the bumbling French detective Jacques Lousseau and his wife Simone, who happens to be having an affair with Sir Charles. She acts as the fence for the Phantom in order to fund her lavish lifestyle. Sir Charles and his nephew both attempt to steal the diamond during a party while dressed as gorillas, which is a sentence I never really thought I'd say out loud. Um, they, <laughs> they discover it's already gone, so they make a ridiculous escape. They're eventually caught after a Scooby-Doo-like chase scene. It's revealed Dalla stole the diamond from the safe, and in order to save Sir Charles, whom she'd fallen for, frames Clouseau during the trial. Clouseau is strangely okay with it due to the amount of attention it gets from female fans. Sir Charles, now exonerated, tells a regretful Simone not to worry that Jacques will be set free when the Phantom strikes again. All right, all right. Great great summary there. Now, Nathan, this is a crime, kidnap, comedy, globetrotting thing. There's not a lot of movies quite like this necessarily today. You alluded to like this is something from a different era. Kind of how does that play for you? Like, do you like this kind of movie? So I absolutely love this kind of movie. I mean, this is kind of a great plot concept. You know, you have an incredibly desirable object. You have all of these complicated circumstances around it. You have the rebels from the fictional country of Lugash who might want to steal it. You have these socialites who are too clingy and, and you know, Maybe they want to steal it or at least glom on to the princess's train of everything. You have scandalous relationships everywhere. You have incredibly tangled knots of people doing things. On the surface, that screenplay idea is really, really great. And add to that, you have some pretty good physical comedy going on into all of this. You have all that. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think this is a, a, a really great movie that lends itself really or at least idea of a movie that lends itself really well to things i think that there are a fairly large number of types of let's say awkward humor that i'm not really as attracted by and there's a certain let's say uh representational problem to do with the princess herself where i it, this is kind of awkward and hard to say because Claudia Cardinal, who's playing Princess Dalla, is great. But does it bother anybody else that this movie starts out with clearly Indian actors and people who are 
kind of fitting to things and that the, the, the princess is one of those actresses at the beginning of the movie, and then all of a sudden she's starring as standard, beautiful, American, white actress type. She, well, she's Mediterranean. She's Mediterranean, but... um. Yeah, she, yeah. she's Italian, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, but still, I, I would say that... I'm glad you're... Go- so you're going right for it. So you, th- this is the elephant in the room, uh, and yeah. yeah, it caught me off guard, too. I actually was confused who this princess was because i actually made i full-blown didn't make the connection of the character because we had this little indian girl and yes the name was said on the screen but my first time going through it i'm not the names aren't in my head as much and i'm seeing it going like okay who is she and what like where does she fall into this and it took it how did she get uh-huh, the it took me a little while to get caught up and then it just clicked and i went oh okay it's like michael jackson she's lighter now <laughs> we, we did have a weird period of time where if you needed someone to appear not american british whatever caucasian you just hired an italian and you're like here you go you're you're a little bit darker skin you can just be arab persian indian whatever we need you to be uh, we had the same issue in ben-hur where yeah actually won best supporting actor but he was good yeah he, he was great yeah but it's a problematic performance no, I, I, exactly. I, I, do two wrongs make a right, Nathan? Because Lugash is a fictional country, so you get a lot of leeway there. But also, through subsequent movies, it's my understanding that Lugash is established to be in the Middle East, and this is pretty much India. So they're taking Arab culture and they're mixing it with Indian culture. So it's good to get that <laughs> one behind us early on and also get it straightened up for who the princess is. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, Chad, let's, let's go... This is actually a movie primarily about Sir Charles, the jewel thief, so they kind of meant it to be. It didn't necessarily end mm-hmm. up getting taken that way, and it evolved as it was being made, even though the script wasn't changed to change that. Do you want to talk about this? Is this a movie about Sir Charles, the jewel thief, or Inspector Clouseau, the detective? I think for this one, it was definitely still Sir Charles's story, but Clouseau obviously stole the spotlight david niven doesn't return while peter sellers is around they wound up making i think it was three more right off the back of this david niven does come back once peter sellers had passed away plays someone else in a very commercial flop but yeah he expected this movie to be about him it was a vehicle for david niven and i to me, it still works. I think the Phantom's a compelling character. He's an interesting character. He's smooth. He's suave. There's a lot of things from the women that's just like, he. we call him the juggler. He can juggle ten <laughs> women in the air. I'm like, what a strange thing for women to just be like, yeah, that's fine. And that was a strange endorsement from a woman. It's just like, and she could keep all of them happy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> also, properties of the 60s. Uh, yeah, that was one of those things. She's like, I don't know. I was one of the ten. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, his scenes with Dala, it's just like, okay, half of this movie is going to be you trying to seduce Dala. And those scenes were great. The ridiculous tiger rug with the ridiculous expression on it just had me cracking up when Dala's laying on it drunk and he's just trying to schmooze her. Oh, yes. Like, there were there were so many good lines and his dialogue was some of the best in the film. Glusso was, he was the pratfall guy. He walks in, he falls against the gurney. He He's just like, oh, um, I, I apologize for the inconvenience. He fell on Sir Charles. But, yeah, 
that's his role. He's the Chevy Chase role. Yeah, I mean, so he, yeah, he, he is a show stealer, though, I think. It's one of those things where everything is fun for me in this movie, and I like all the stuff that's happening. And so regardless of whether they're showing what Simone, uh, Madame Clouseau, is up to, who I think she's very funny in her own right, actually, whether it's on The Princess, who's a compelling character, regardless of how it's cast, and or whether it's on Sir Charles, I think we have good options or we have four good people to keep the camera on uh, five if you count george as well yeah and and george is also mm-hmm. very good so i think i think anytime you've got five good characters with the right actors in there and the script this good this is what's so electric about it so i just yeah it's, it's so much fun and i think the relationship that's pretty out there like you have this wife of the inspector who, who's kind of having an affair on the side and working completely against him, not only in his marriage, but also in his, his investigation. That's a pretty funny concept right off the bat. That alone could float a movie, but this movie takes several more layers beyond that. Yeah. There are so many scenes in this movie where, because we know the audience knows everything, this is not a mystery movie. Exactly. This isn't the audience knows everything. And you're just wondering how the cards are going to fall. And there are so many scenes where, right from the start when she's fencing for the phantom and she's pursued by the cops and they get a look at her so they describe her appearance back to Clouseau as the inspector as he's taking his phone and then she walks into the room never knowing of course that he just received a description of his wife I did a double take so like I was like wait is that the woman from the elevator it can't be it's gotta be some other woman with brown hair is it like and that just the very notion that this woman yeah is playing both sides of this is it's that's a really funny thing and then also fundamentally it's really funny that you have this knockout of i mean she's gorgeous and uh, she's playing the the wife of this goofy kind of bumbling character so it, that in itself is also funny he's essentially peppy Le Pew. <laughs> but there he he is he's just very adoring smothering even and she's always pushing him off like the female skunk but yeah for me she really played the part capucin was who played it she played the part like lucille ball in an i love lucy episode especially the when the two men george and sir charles are in her room and inspector clouseau comes in as well and one's in the bed and one's in the bathtub and she's moving wine glasses and it's just a very sitcom-esque i love lucy type situation and i thought it was i like great. that lucy comparison yeah that's a great comparison. You know, in, in, in 10 minutes into this, we've compared it to Looney Tunes, I Love Lucy, James Bond, and I love all of these things. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they're all great. Now, I wanted to ask, is there anything that... So clearly you got lost a little bit in keeping track of some of these characters, as did I the first time. I would say that this movie actually moves pretty fast, and it, you need to pay attention. My wife broke this up into three settings just because of you know, watching it late at night and stuff like that, and she also had to have a few questions answered and it helped that I had seen it before. So I think we've all kind of had these moments, whether it be, wait, that's the princess, or wait, who's married to who, and why is, like, what's their motivation? It takes a little bit of time to get pieces on the table. Nathan's right. You know everything, but you don't know it very, very quickly, and stuff's moving fast. You're changing cities. You go from Rome, you go to Paris, you go to the ski slopes, you go to Hollywood, and you're introducing new characters. And 
about a third of the way in the movie, they're all starting to collide, and you're, that's when the pieces start to go together. But if you're not on your toes, yeah, it you can get lost in this one. It does definitely help rewatching this movie that all of these plots end up being so clearly laid out at the beginning. Because when you do rewatch it, you realize there's all these little tongue-in-cheek winks towards what you know. So it makes sense that the advertising of this movie was very much, you should see this twice. Yeah, yeah. And even the first time I watched it, one of the big things I, I got lo- I lost in there was, way to search Charles's plan like okay we're gonna kidnap the dog but to what end you want the diamond and stuff like that that was a little bit fuzzy to me the first time and so i don't want to knock it for not being clear enough but there's just so much happening and i think that that complexity is honestly something that i ultimately go on to like and find rewarding and maybe that's that clue like element that you're talking about chad where there's there's many things going on and to piece together uh, takes takes focus, but it's also rewarding. Yeah. The one thing, and maybe you guys can help me out on this, the one thing that I couldn't catch was what brought Clouseau to the Dolomites in the resort. How did he know to go there? The resort drew him there because Princess Dala was there. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, but there wasn't any... There was never a line that said, oh, the Pink Panther's exposed, the Phantom might go for think, it. Well, the was... diamond he said was just so irresistible. Like the Phantom's got to go for it. Like it's a hot item in the news at this point. So I think I think he just think he knew that that's the Phantom style. Like you have a high profile gem in the news, and he's gonna want it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Is that fair, Chad? Yeah, they could have included in one of those spinning news tape paper tropes. They already had U.S. Soviet talks ease tension. It's like okay, well that's dating it. Yeah, and it was weird. It's theoretically in Europe, but they're reading a newspaper that's talking about a Packers game. Darn cheeseheads are everywhere. I don't think I noticed the Packers game. Yeah, the second time around, I, I, it's it's always funny in movies. You know, what is the newspaper? Where is it from? What you know? How did they get to just grab one, or did they write something up custom for it? But they're sitting in like a European city, and yet they're reading about something that covers everything from russia to something about a swedish soccer team or something and one of the big headlines is like packers win by some number it's like what what is this newspaper i don't know maybe it's just an american paper being sold around the world like i don't know maybe somebody's reading the usa today the wall street journal or new york times or something overseas but yeah i don't know it could be the international edition you're asking questions that I didn't ask. <laughs> the other thing is, I think a good line that kind of sums up this, a certain bit of dishonesty begets a certain amount of dishonesty. And it's interesting, you know, you're kind of also watching out the whole time to see whether Sir Charles is going to turn on Madame Clouseau. Is he actually falling for the princess? And then also at the same time, this wild card comes in and out of here, George, and he's trying to kind of cut into his uncle's business by taking his thieving gear and to try and beat him to the diamond because he has his own financial issues to beat out as well and i just like all these angles again there's so many moving parts and again if you're not paying attention you will lose it talk about the george element of this because i i felt like when things seemed to be going fine he was the aspect of the plot that would put a kink in things throw stuff off enough and then really start to add the humor in chad yeah he was a very strange character for me because even when simone sneaks into the bedroom to see sir charles 
George gets very, very handsy right away. Like, all right, you got to dial this down to like a one or a two. You don't have your uncle's suaveness. This is just straight up, you know, kind of rapey. Back off, dude. So he's he's messing with his woman. Then he's messing with his job. He gets uncomfortably close. And I know that was supposed to be a funny scene with Princess Dollar, but he's like sitting in her lap talking to her. And I just picture Seinfeld and the close talker. Like, get away. There, it's a very large couch, and I think it was deliberately shot that way. This huge couch that he's like right in her lap as she's right against the very edge of it. So it's just a very uncomfortable scene. He was a weird, creepy character to me. Oh yeah, he 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 uh, goes after any any female that he can. I would say both of the Littons get uncomfortably close to Princess Dalla at various points. I guess, but I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and again, it's it's like this is a little bit of a time capsule of the 60s where apparently it's OK for the male characters to assume that they can take all of the women that they meet under their wing and need to kind of help them out for everything they're doing. So Sir Charles Lytton ends up on the ski slopes next to Princess Dalla as his dog plan is unfolding and without them knowing each other practically at all really he kind of keeps on putting an arm out to sort of hold on to her and 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 that sort of thing as the sleigh is being taken away and you know professes his promise to go get the dog and all that sort of thing so you know again 60s-isms that in order to enjoy the film you have to just kind of put that in a box on one side with all the criticisms of the creepy parts of the movie and then sort of extricate the plot, the wonderful plot well, from it. Well, I push back on that a little bit because she she doesn't fall to him in the way that uh, most people or most women normally do. She slaps him and, you know, she stands up for herself. She pokes at him and kind of makes him look silly at, at the dinner party by kind of calling attention to his lifestyle. Even the next morning after she drinks so much, she would, you know, she was kind of pointing out, she was like, my virtue is still intact, isn't it? So it's one of those things where he was actually falling for her. He he was enchanted by her. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a great slap, too. Like, she got full palm on that face, so good for her. I like the slap that didn't come, where, like, like that's a good, like, I'm about to get slapped face. Like, yes. we don't get enough I'm about to be slapped faces in this in this world. So <laughs> I, I definitely like Niven, like, sitting there cringing, like, when is the slap coming? So... Going back to George just is one of those things where I didn't realize it the first time I watched it, but he's he throws everything off for the Phantom. The Phantom's got this surgical like precision and he knows what he's doing, but from the time he walks in, Simone is thrown off. She starts coughing. She's just like over like like this isn't expected and you're right, she hops in bed and then he's there, like he's all the way into his uncle's room. His uncle is dragging the princess into the room and then he turns around and next thing you know, his <laughs> his nephew George is there helping him move his body and move the uh, passed out body. And all of a sudden, like things start spiraling. He messes up his pursuits of the princess possibly and he gets in the way. And again, he ends up competing to try and steal that diamond. In the end, I really liked how his uncle... Again, all these are likable characters, including George. His uncle kind of like says like, ah, you just remind me of me. Like, you know, like it's welcome to the family business kind of thing. And he doesn't really hold it against them. But I mean, he does cause a lot of things to go wrong. And it's because of that that makes it go better. And 
you know, it's just part of him. Like he's in debt to the mob and he's a mooch. He's taken all this money from his uncle and stuff like that over the years, lying and saying he was in school or that he was in Africa, that yeah. he was sick. And, you know, and he's honestly come back to tell everybody, I might go into the Peace Corps and stuff like that again to mooch, get more money and, you know, keep the ride, keep the gravy train going. I do think that George's plot arc is probably the funniest part of the movie for me in a way when you look back at, at it because he's spent his whole life thinking that he's mooching off of his perfectly fantastic person of an uncle who's, you know, so great and so giving that he'll fund him from his own money for the college education that he thinks he's giving him and and, and so George is like, oh, I feel so bad about things and maybe he's even coming back to, like... I don't know, tell the truth or something eventually. But then he finds out that his uncle is this jewel thief and just feels like so vindicated that, oh man, you're lying too? And then his uncle's like, you know what? what what's the exact line that he says? Like, dishonesty begets dishonesty. certain amount of dishonesty, dishonesty. yeah, begets so, dishonesty. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know what? I'm kind of angry at you, but... I can't really say that I'm any better, so we're both we both deserve to be in this prison cell that we're about to throw. This Cluzo movie in. does such a great job of taking you know, Sir Charles as a professional. You could tell he's he's got that English air of just almost nobility, but he's smooth, he's small, suave. And then this movie turns it on his head. It's like you know what? We're gonna put you in a set piece where you're gonna be in a bad gorilla costume interacting with people dressed as zebras for no apparent reason and you're going to run into your nephew who's also dressed in the same bad gorilla costume we're going to have mirror scenes we're going to have the scooby-doo chase scene in cars where people are saying wasn't there another gorilla like <laughs> stuff, stuff like this is going on and they yep, just take yep. these professionals that aren't supposed to be Clouseau just butt of the jokes and they make them the butt of the joke and I really like that being turned on its head me too yeah now one thing I like to do in comedy movies is just to kind of run through things that made you laugh in this movie Chad what are some of the really funny moments that like you know like do you have any hit list for like ah this is good comedy oh there's so much even Clouseau going back to get milk and he spills it in the stairwell and he comes back to Simone, and she looks at this barely full milk glass, and he just goes, that's all they had. <laughs> it's, it's a yep, very yep. near-empty glass, but even cold feet, when they get in bed and it's showing the cold feet, and he starts, he breaks out a Stradivarius violin and starts playing for her as an homage, Sherlock Holmes, and it's just very, very bad. You mean it's not helping? As she's just kind of cringing and wants him to go away. Then later he... You know what my favorite part of that scene is? It's, <laughs> it's the fact that it's actually dubbed. Like, either he was so bad that they couldn't keep it in the scene or they didn't record it well, but whatever, whatever it is, they have a different recording of violin playing over his bad violin and I have uh, no 60s idea dubbed why, all kinds because... of stuff. They just don't have the control with the sound equipment at the time. Uh, probably more of this movie is okay, dubbed than you actually well, realize, probably. 
Maybe, because whatever the case, the sound wasn't aligning to his playing the violin, and yet it was such bad sound that I would totally believe that that is the sound his violin had been making during that scene. So it's like, usually in the in, in films, especially modern films, you see these famous actors trying to pretend to play violin, and they dub something over top of it, and the bow doesn't align to what's being played. But what's being played sounds fantastic, sounds too perfect to be real, because of course they're not actually doing it and this is the only case i've ever seen where the sound is as bad or possibly worse than what the actor was actually doing. yes they, they might have made it worse you never know yeah but yeah i promise you like all those scenes outdoors all of that's dubbed like they couldn't they wouldn't be able oh, to I'm do sure. that back then and um so yeah 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 chad's right from the moment we meet inspector clouseau i love his clumsiness like he spins a globe and then like means to lean on the edge of it and then like actually puts his hand on it and then falls in the floor and everything from that point it sets the tone this is a clumsy unaware man even though he's an inspector who like you said Sherlock Holmes never misses a thing but he he's missing everything around him and that's a very funny concept like a this confident i won't say he's in, he's a confident lovable idiot so you know He's walking around the hotel and, you know, he sticks a finger behind him. He's like, I'm going to catch him. And, like, he ends up sticking his finger up a guy's nose behind him, uh, you know, kicks over a uh, fireplace stuff. He falls over furniture. He's these pratfalls sound like cheap laughs, but when they're done so consistently and not necessarily it's not the main thing that's happened. It's secondary. They're actually having a very serious conversation to what's going on and that he's doing this so Mm, fluidly it's hard to describe why this isn't just so goofy like this isn't necessarily harpo marks like you know taking over with physical humor it's it's in addition to something very funny that's unfolding beyond us and so his physical humor is a nice layer as opposed to this is all that's happening right now no you're right there's during the fireworks scene when everything's going off and everyone's fleeing, it's just a throwaway gag in the background, but he is riding the zebra on his night costume out of the hall. And it, it's two people presumably in the zebra costume, this ridiculous zebra costume. It's never explained. They're drinking punch in the background. They do use it for, I'll have your stripes at one point. Cause he's drinking the punch in costume, but yeah. And it's an officer, or it's two officers. Right. They're, they're, they're Clouseau's in disguise detectives. I gotta imagine that there could have been a line in this movie that the department is deliberately putting Clouseau in charge of this because, as, is, as we find out later, the Phantom is a national celebrity. They don't want him caught. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Right? Yeah, I mean, I guess in the end they, they pointed that out. Like he was, It is also interesting to see all these women getting excited and following the uh, the Phantom, as like like you mentioned. Like we don't have celebrity thieves necessarily, and but I guess he had a he did have a flair for the dramatic, as they pointed out time and time again. He wanted the attention, and uh, he was relishing in how good he was at it. And in fairness, I like that. I like that about Sir Charles. He's not stealing to get rich. He's already rich. He's stealing almost out of sport. Like it's something to do. I'm bored. I'm rich. This is yeah. fun. He's the snazziest kind of thief. He's he's cracking safes with his amazing ears. He's he's taking ropes out of windows. 
doing funny things like making the rope actually essentially a uh, like a fuse almost which was a really clever sight gag it did not terminate in an explosion like i was completely ex- expecting it to yeah and which by the way that seems like quite a liability to have like as your getaway that's your main getaway rope like you know if someone's just walking on the street and throws a cigarette on it then poof, your, your getaway rope's burned up <laughs> i i guess i never thought about that yeah well once you see zoolander's gasoline fight you'll never think about you know you'll think twice before you you know <laughs> Derek's zoolander school for children that can't read good Mm-hmm. yeah anybody could have died it was just a simple gasoline fight yes <laughs> so we we've gotten to talk about the casting a little bit but this is an interesting story this movie was intended to have david niven as the main character which we mentioned and this would help launch a series of movies akin to the thin man series however peter seller's portrayal was, was so beloved by the audience it became the main character of the th- sequels that came after this what's interesting is peter sellers himself wasn't meant to be in the seat and it's kind of funny how it happened the original casting for this movie with david niven was going to have ava gardner in the role of madame clouseau and peter ustinov as the inspector now these are different actors and you're going to get a different product out of this bigger names at the time though but ava gardner and even janet lee were offered the role of simone clouseau in her autobiography, Lee stated that she turned this down because she had recently gotten married to her fourth husband and didn't want to go on location away from her husband. I don't know if uh, fourth time's a charm or not. I actually didn't follow that through to see if that one worked out or not. But Gardner did accept the role. She was a big star, and she had a lot of salary demands. She Her upkeep was too high, and she ended up withdrawing from the cast when things broke down. And Usanov said, hmm... Uh, without Gardner here, like, we're losing our star power. I don't want to be part of this. And so he pulled out, too. And with just two weeks to go, they went out and got Capucine. And and then little-known or lesser-known Peter Sellers came into the role. And it's kind of funny how all this comes together because we've been complimenting how well these people are at their roles, but it almost didn't happen in that way. Yeah. Yeah, they also wanted Audrey Hepburn to play the princess, which we've seen an Audrey Hepburn princess vehicle with Roman Holiday. She does a great job, but it seems like funds were out. So we are just getting lesser known actors to fill in this role and let David Niven take over. And that's not what happened. Yeah. 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 And it seems like Peter Sellers drove a lot of the physical comedy being in this movie. And it's and and, and it takes it from being a somewhat serious gem heist to being something where you can you can really believe that his wife is uh, someone who possibly came into his life deliberately to help the Phantom out. Like maybe she and the Phantom were together before she married Inspector Clouseau, and she's been spending the entire time helping hel- helping the Phantom out because Clouseau says he's been spending 20 years. It's his life's work to try to catch who the the Phantom who turns out to be Sir Charles. Yeah, and the director, his name's Blake Edwards, he talked about this. You know, we're talking a lot about Peter Sellers, but he talks about a pain threshold and that it had to be painful and it had to be painful for a long amount of time until it started being funny again. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I kind of had that after reading his remarks and listening to some interviews. It started out with him just falling on Sir Charles. I'm like, oh, great. 
this is the kind of movie it's going to be. But it kept happening. And good for Peter Sellers. Chevy Chase is another one that Chevy Chase, when he's in stuff, he's like, I need to fall. It'll be funny. And Peter Sellers had the same thought. So kudos on Peter Sellers. You did get past the pain threshold for me. It was funny. I think there's also an emotional pain threshold. Like, I mean, in a way, you start to feel sorry for this. He's lovable. So you start to feel sorry for him that his wife is totally not into him. She's totally into this thief and she's undermining his career, too. And so it's hard to not feel sorry for him. And I could even see some people starting to feel that way. But they go past the pain threshold again, if you will. And it just becomes this ridiculous, over the top, funny thing because they've gone so far beyond the point where you feel sorry for him. Now, I know that if Brian Fry were on this podcast, he's one of those people who's, who doesn't like, quote unquote, bad things happening to people for comedy. But uh, I'm going to refer to Will Rogers on this one. Everything's funny when it happens to somebody else. <laughs> I, I did feel bad. One of my notes when they played the Pink Panther theme for Simone, it's like that harlot does not deserve the Pink Panther theme. Don't do that. She's cheating on him. Give that to Clouseau. I know it was more the thieves theme, but no. Not for Simone. She she gets nothing. No soup for her. Yes. And as you mentioned, Claudia Cardinal was actually a recommendation from her friend Audrey Hepburn when she turned down the role. So she then mentioned that Claudia Cardinal would be good for this role. So that was a reference there. And also Audrey Hepburn was also friends with Capucine, who was a model. And she did have an acting career as well. And I thought she was... A really good find in this one. It's funny. Audrey Hepburn's great for for second choices on all of these things. Obviously, except for David Niven, it's amazing how all these second choices click, and it's so amazing that they find all these people as late as even two weeks. Blake Edwards, the director, didn't even meet Peter Sellers until they were on the plane to fly to Rome to start filming. I don't know how you go about recommending someone that can't speak a word of English. Claudia Cardinal can't speak English. So all of her lines were dubbed by a 20-year-old Gail Garnet. But, yeah, it's just, did they know? Did she just show up and they're speaking English to her? She's like, mm, no say? I don't know. Nothing's more uh, Legeshian than, than not being able to speak <laughs> English. So there you go. One of, one of many trust falls that the movie industry seems to be willing to take. Uh, it was pretty common. All, like Half of the Bond girls from Connery's era, you know, I mean, Ursula Andress couldn't speak, like yeah. the iconic first Bond woman. She couldn't speak. She couldn't speak a lick yeah. of English when she came over. So, you know, they just said, does she look good? Yeah. Yes. Okay. She's got the role. <laughs> Do you want to read these lines? Not important. Not important. I wonder what the percentage was, but you're right. They definitely got a lot of Italian models and just said, hey, come on over. Doesn't matter if you can speak English. Just be pretty in this part and we'll fix it later. I don't know if Sid Charisse could have. I, I don't know her background, but she was considered for Princess Dalla as well. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It's one of those things. It was just like, well, she's Swedish. All right. Great. No, I mean, that is a problem. Oh, no, no, it's not a problem. No problem. No problem at all. <laughs> no, I don't think you understand. She can't speak English. I'm sorry. We've already booked this. What's the next issue? <laughs> so, yeah. Looking into Capucine a little bit, this is somebody I wasn't as familiar with. She was interesting. She kind of had a scandalous, you know, life in her own right. She had a, she had been married for only eight months with Pierre Trebond. Uh, they had met on a movie and uh, she then had affairs with Charles K. Feldman. He was the producer of What's New Pussycat. And then she had an affair with William Holden. And he left her $50,000 at his death. So he was 
legitimately fond of her enough to do that. And she reportedly had affairs with women in Hollywood as well. And uh, so her her own marriage was short, and then she seems to just never find her own person. So her 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 life path's a little bit sad. So she suffers from depression, and she ends up throwing herself off of uh, off of her uh, balcony in her residence. So uh, she ends up dying early, not like super early, like I think it was 60, but still one of those things where. Uh, I wondered why we didn't see more of her, but I thought she was—I thought she had potential to be a bigger star than this because she exhibited such good, such good comedy and timing, and she held the screen when it was on her. It's funny, David Niven was a little bit sore at times. You know, they like—he went to an award show where he won an award, and they wanted to just play the Pink Panther music, even though it wasn't for the Pink Panther, and he didn't want that. He said, "This wasn't my movie," and it is funny. It's very much an ensemble to me on this one but to me peter sellers stands out the most and but capucine steals plenty of scenes in her own right yeah she was great loved her now nathan did you have any thoughts on the writing production and the that side of things well you know i think i should take this time to call out peter mancini who wrote the score for this movie and just note how influential this piece is this is a this is a jazz score that starts out with a number that is so iconic that you can just start singing the first three notes and maybe doing some finger snaps and everybody knows exactly where you're going with with that movie bottom 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 it's just wonderful having played it a whole bunch of times you, you know there's a lot of movie music that community bands and you know grade school bands like to do that when you encounter it it's like ah i guess we can do this again this was fun the first time but this isn't all that great but this is a piece that is just really really fun to listen to so i just want to give a shout out to the score now i'm not much of a jazz expert nor am i an expert on this kind of sound at the time how typical is this of its era is this a standout in its era and thus it made the movie bigger or is the song beloved because the movie's awesome i think that this song is related to the movie's popularity I, you know it's it's not doing anything incredibly crazy it, you know it, it it is one of these pieces one thing of this era is that composers of this music were writing specifically for certain musicians so the tenor saxophonist who is playing the solo that that is so iconic this was written for him based on his tone and sound which is one of the reasons that it works so well is because this is the kind of thing that if you know the musician and exactly what they're good at you can make music that sounds even better than if you're just writing generally and then all saxophonists ever who started playing saxophone after this you know are are uh, compelled to at some point try to imitate that sound and i think that 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 is really special i do think that this music is really helped out by the wonderful animated sequence that is the opening yeah. of this movie and 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 that's a unique and bold move that feels like it is something that it was like an instant franchise feeling like this is com- this is akin to the beginning of a James Bond movie where it's something that is so self-confident and knows exactly what it's doing that it feels like it's setting up for more to follow up with. So that's a, a, a great bit of franchise building. Yeah. There. It's uh, it's interesting. The cartoon takes on its own life. And, you know, I think 
I remember being a kid and thinking, why do movies have to put all the names at the beginning? You're going to show them all at the end and just get on with it. Like, uh, as an impatient, you know, kid, yeah. I hate it. I hated opening credits. And it's one of those things where this movie gives you something to enjoy. It doesn't necessarily support the plot. And that's one of those interesting things that I kind of thought was interesting. I certainly think of it. I've seen this as a kid. I think I would have loved it even more. I've just been like, hey, they gave us something to look at while all these boring names are running across the screen. So, yeah. And after watching this, I will forever think about the snap in that theme song differently because the snap is being played by this the, the glove of the phantom thief who's trying to steal the Pink Panther. And the first time it comes on is it's taken a swipe at the the panther and then it gives a snap of disappointment which is very funny to think about going forward on this where that's the the snap of someone having nearly gotten there but just missed yeah chad did you have any thoughts on the how the making of pink panther the writers almost got my mvp to be honest the jokes here are not just simple jokes it's the layering and the nuance for me there's rarely one thing happening. So even with the George and Sir Charles scene, you know, glasses on the floor that are going to get knocked over. Sir Charles is in the bathtub, and then when they get in the bathtub together, Sir, or not Sir Charles, George is in the bathtub. And so they are having to submerge George, or George tries to get in the bed, but Sir Charles is already there. And Clouseau's going back and forth, and he's going into rooms he shouldn't be or places he shouldn't be so there's so much layering to every single joke that's coming here we talked about the the background gags some of them even that didn't hit as well like the cleopatra halloween costume where she did she say it was something about her asp get, get your hands off my asp yeah get get your hands off my asp i'm like of course it's like a cleopatra but it was a bit cheesy but I like that. No, I'm I'm, I'm going to go to bat for that one. All right. But that's just another example of they could have, they just keep layering in jokes on top of other jokes. So I appreciated the writing so much and it's concise. Yeah, apparently there's some confusion of characters that may be an issue of casting. Can't tell our Italian actresses apart. But other than that, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's interesting here to what you're saying is part of the freedom that they had to be able to do this came from the fact that this wasn't made in the traditional sense through the studio system at that point because the brothers Mirish had stepped into the scene and they were a smaller production and their big thing was giving the filmmakers and writers and the actors the freedom that they had to create their art and they were just going to be simple. They're going to handle the contracts, the finances, and whatnot. And so when Blake Edwards was brought in, People didn't want him to do this. United Artists didn't want him to make the Pink Panther. He felt good about it, but they didn't want him to do it. And thank goodness the Mirish brothers said, we're going to take care of United Artists. You make your movie. We'll get your money. We believe in you. Now, he had the credibility after doing, uh, you know, Days of Wine and Roses and uh, Breakfast with Tiffany, or sorry, Breakfast at Tiffany's. So he had credibility, and he'd come from a filmmaking family as well. His, his grandfather and father were both in the business. So 
uh, nepotism in full effect. He he's definitely insulated, and you know he's got the credibility as well as the connections at this point. So he didn't have to answer to the studios as much because of this, because the studio systems were kind of changing at this point in history, and he got to make the movie the way that he wanted to. And so it was particularly Blake Edwards and his good relationship that he had with both Maurice Richards, the screenplay writer, and then which by the way they had worked on Petticoat together which is where he had met Audrey Hepburn, which is why he wanted her back and where all these connections came from, by the way, through Maurice Richards and then talking to Peter Sellers and then they really connected as an actor and a director for what is funny. And to your point that layering, Chad, comes from their their strong relationship, the director saying, Peter, that was funny, what if you did this? And then Peter doing it, and then they would kind of one-up each other. They would escalate. And it's this wonderful collaboration between the person in charge and the person who's performing and you've got the right parts at that point, and that's when it's electric. Yeah, and he also knows when to keep the camera still. I really appreciate that. In an age where we're cutting everywhere, the still shot for the bedroom scene where Clouseau's walking in and out due to Simone's request, and you just see their feet, and the camera lingers there, or even during the car chase scene. Part of me said, okay, yeah. this lingered too long. It was basically a still shot, but it got funnier the longer it lingered on that just still frame shot. So I appreciated its decision making. One of the things that's so strong about those long shots is that you start exploring places with your eyes for things that you might expect to become funny. So there's all these almost Chekhov's guns of obstacles that Clouseau might run into in the scene. And so you wait for a whole scene and he's standing right next to like a step at the, 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 the mansion in Rome and you just know that he's going to trip over it. And he goes through the whole scene very seriously promising to stop the thief and then finally trips over the <laughs> step. And it's you you've just built up this thing in your head like, Oh man, it's gonna be he's gonna go all the way down and he and, and he trips over but he he managed to stay up. It's like that was a Great direction. No, great choice. I mean, like, they brought the fireworks through the house, which you would not do, but I mean, <laughs> it, it sets up, it sets up this, this isn't, a, this is, what kind of candle is this? And you're like, ah, okay, yeah, it's, you know, this is an earnest movie kind of joke or whatever. Oh, no. Then they dial it up to 10 because it flies into not just a box of fireworks, the next thing you know, the whole halls, and it's the whole scale of the things. Again, to what Chad's saying, like, to write such a thing mm, it's not enough to write it like it's such a collaborative effort to build that into this huge spectacle that thins over the top and and to chad's point it's a lot to manage really good job by blake edwards to to do all of that and to stay in control which he did by all people's accounts wouldn't it be so fun to be a writer during this though because it seems like nothing was said no to one of them had to have gone to the other and said what if we introduce the next scene with a gorilla with a sparkler singing rule britannia and they're just like yes <laughs> everything was a yes and they do things like they have the scene where they're all driving around in cars trying to escape and they can't find their way out of the town and they're all going in different directions and there's just and it's instead of being framed through one of their points of views it's just this random italian guy in the town who's trying to cross the road and you get to see just how ridiculous all of this has got to look because they're all I in love costumes. that dude because he just gets a chair and sits down with this expression of yep same stuff different day like he's just over it 
One of the things that Blake Edwards points out that made them connect with Peter Sellers, yeah, the two of them, was their love of Laurel and Hardy. And he said a lot of Peter Sellers' performance through how he emotes through his face and through the physical nature of what they're doing and the style of comedy that they were kind of creating together was very much rooted in that Laurel and Hardy thing, which I do see. And uh, there's that likability that you have in Sellers' character. Like you, like in the car as he's driving away and they're just like, he's kind of like, hmm, maybe I will go along with this. Like kind of this very likable sense of the expressions that he does. It's not just so much in terms of the individual performance acting. It's also in the comedy style. And that that's something that they connected with and bonded on right away. And I am kind of sitting there thinking, like, I feel a little bit bad for David Niven. Like, this was supposed to be, quote unquote, his movie. And he his, I don't think he takes it that well. But uh, it's one of those things where Blake didn't change the script, but the movie evolved and he let it happen. That's great filmmaking when you have, comedy-wise anyway, to let let things adapt, evolve, and find the funny, and to encourage it, not tamp it down. A lot of people might, who are control freaks, might have said, this is not my vision. And I find that a lot of times a great comedy director has to have a certain degree of mm, trust and collaboration and willingness to let the vision evolve as it goes through with the people that you have there with them. And Edwards had that. Absolutely. Script supervisor Betty Abbott Griffin said that they had only rehearsed for two weeks, but something special was happening because Peter would do something and then Blake would say, just escalate it and up it. And nobody resented each other. Like Blake had control, but it was in a wonderful way where nobody resented him for that control. So again, that's just really impressive to see how all that kind of comes together, especially as you hear those things. Yeah, Sellers made him a lot of money. He goes on to direct what? This was one of three back-to-back-to-back, so it was hugely successful for him. Yeah. And going back to your comment about the fixed cameras, Blake Edwards also said he has a high appreciation. He says things can be funnier when they're off-camera. You hear things as they're coming, and the sense of the stage, as you think of it, is beyond the frame. And you know that Clouseau walks off. It somewhat accentuates that, okay, I'm up and I'm out of bed again to do this sort of thing and it it exaggerates and it elevates the moment and you're right chad i don't think i can think of it done quite this way other than honestly it has a looney tunes quality like absolutely sometimes sometimes wily coyote leaves the yeah. camera you hear a crash and then you come back and you see where he is in a much of the same way like it, they could have seen you know george run over david niven but it's actually funnier if he's like a pancake on the ground with like snow tracks over him and the next thing you know george has got this dog like skiing down the hill out of control it's it's unorganic it's probably unnatural i mean the cars that crash in the square at the end can't look like that but they cut them up and they put them together in such a way that's so mangled it's almost funnier that way absolutely this is a movie that invites you to explore with your mind what might happen in the shot and what is happening around the shot in a really great way that I think is different than a lot of movies that are trying to show you all the time exactly what to look at and framing things so that there's exactly one way to go versus something like this where the deep background is always really important and it's it's great. I'd be remiss if we didn't bring this up though. What did you think about the environments in which this movie is shot, Nathan? I think it's really interesting the amazing sense of space that you get in this film. So there are a lot of scenes that 
are comedically driven by how bold characters are being, where they're how close they are. So Clouseau and Madame Clouseau are staying in a hotel room, which it has an adjoining door to where the Phantom slash uh, Sir Charles Lytton is staying. And throughout the movie, you get this back and forth amazing sense. And then later on, we get to see outside both doors through a glass door to the stairwell. And there's this amazing feeling that you don't get in a lot of movies where you can see what's going on in the foreground with Simone is gesturing to Charles and trying to get him to do something. And, and, you know, we can hide over here. And you see a police officer and Clouseau are going somewhere else. And you know because you've been in the rooms and seeing things from that perspective so much exactly what the geometry that they're trying to get people to follow is. And that is a rare thing. I don't think that happens in a lot of movies where you really know what the 3D space is and that the comedy is fully integrated in it. That's a great point. And I think that that shows that Blake Edwards is making a comedy movie on a different level than a lot of people are making them on. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Chad, absolutely. did you like the cities and locations they went to? We have Rome, Paris, Los Angeles, briefly Los Angeles, and then the luxurious winter retreat setting of Cortina di Ampezzo I, in northern Italy. I did. To harken back to our Bond comments, it reminded me a lot of For Your Eyes Only. Take what you will of that movie, whether it's good or bad. You know, BB's one of the more <laughs> annoying characters, but... Great movie. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I... I did really particularly like the ski resort the the lounge was great the outdoor environment was great and it caused we'll talk about it a little bit here in a minute but the wardrobe the knit sweaters things like that i love everything that this environment caused it it was just this different fashion it was a very 60s fashion but i enjoyed it if you throw a little bit of rome in there that's always going to help chad i learned this on the on the um Roman holiday episode as well. Well, also Ben-Hur, obviously, but little little shots driving by the Colosseum, seeing St. Peter's Cathedral in the background. These these have to help you out, I, I imagine. Always, yes. Similarly, they're not in Paris very long, but boy, they pick their locations beautifully. Like the, the run that Simone leaves from passing off the jewels, evading the police before she runs in that hotel. Great locations and great ways of milking in their locations and stuff like that. Blake Edwards... I was asked, you know, about selecting his locations on this one. It seems particularly inspired, but he just simply said, I like to go places where they have nice restaurants and nice hotels, and I haven't been there before. It's the Adam Sandler method of making a film. This is not grown-ups. This this is, uh, I, I, I halfway wonder if he's being tongue-in-cheek modest on that one, because everything here is so inspired. Like, you know, like you said, it has a Bond feeling. And it's funny you say that you brought up For Your Eyes Only. This is the hotel that is in for your eyes only. This is the Miramonte Majestic Grand Hotel, which is charming. Maybe that's why I was so convinced that this was essentially a Bond parody, because it just feels like exactly that location. Well, it's funny. The Bond movie we're referring to comes out in 81. It's a, it's a Moore movie, uh, Roger Moore movie. Yeah, yeah. This movie comes out way before that. It's in 63. Way before. So, yeah. So in a way, it's parody, but in the other way, that's one of those things where... What's parroting the parody of, like, what's taking influence from and all that stuff? And David Niven, for that matter, was in the Casino Royale parody. Not not the Daniel Craig uh, Casino Royale, obviously, but the, the older Casino Royale, which is a spoof James Bond. 
and that David Niven was the lead in that one. So the the amount of crossover and relationship to the Bond series is is uh, certainly to be seen, not just in location, but in an actor as well. Chad, you said you had some wardrobe comments. Yeah, first and foremost, to me, the robes were really cool. And the Halloween costumes, that's always going to make me happy, especially when they lean into the comedy. But props to, I'm going to mispronounce his first name, Yves St. Laurent. He created the gowns for Capucin and Claudia Cardinal. That was his first Hollywood film project. That's really mm, impressive. He nailed it. Yeah, yeah, he nailed it. I love the knits. I love the sweaters and then the 60s ski style. It's just, it oozes high society and cool. Yeah. Uh, Nathan, any thoughts on what people were wearing? I just got a second all that. I thought that the... The, the ski outfits and everything, especially during some of those scenes where they're indoors, but they're still all sweatered up in their, in their wonderful wonderful garb, which is just so fitting to the environment that they're in. One of the things that makes these environments work so well is the differences in both the environment and what people are wearing. So you, you have in the city, and they're all wearing fairly normal, standard, businessy, sleek garb, and then they get to the ski slopes, and they're warmly dressed to go along with the fires and the wonderful warm interiors, and then you get to Rome, and you have the crazy extravaganzas and party environment. So it, it, it really goes to, again, add to the setting of the space and the understanding of the space. The I just want to call out that Sir Charles's character, who is a playboy character, the juggler, if you will, he is he has a red <laughs> jacket with black lapels. I, I, I sat there was like, man, this this character is like so modeled after Hugh Hefner. If you Google like what Hugh Hefner wears, I mean, it's that red jacket, the black lapels is pretty typical for what Hugh wears a lot. (laughs) I think there was, yeah, I think, I think they modeled Sir Charles being this ladies man and of great sophistication and elegance. Uh, Obviously Hugh is not British, but he's smooth. Yeah. And, and again, shout out to how integral things are in this movie with the humor being a layer on top of other things where the, 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 the reversible coat that Simone has at the beginning when she's hiding from everybody. That's a very, it's a very effective Glad you pointed scene. that out. That was very yeah. cool, actually. I mean, that would be cool in a today's movie to have a reversible jacket and have, you know, a different set of shoes. And I mean, she did have a completely different look in one elevator ride. And that elevator is clearly faster than today's elevators because it was like, boop, push the button, bing, and the doors close way faster. If that's a today's elevator, you're getting, she she would not have gotten away. <laughs> exactly. I, I I was half expecting when she, the second time I watched this movie, I was almost expecting her to walk into Clouseau, Clouseau's office having flipped it back to Tan to just make it all the funnier that he doesn't notice anything. Having had this this person just described having been wearing a tan coat. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I didn't expect to talk about special effects, but I did want to mention this one. The bath scene with Capucine and Robert Wagner is a particularly <laughs> funny story here. They they wanted a lot of bubbles in a bubble bath, and it is very bubbly, so the they definitely achieved what they were looking for. But to do so, they used an industrial strength foaming agent. I love old Hollywood stories. They abuse their actors so much. <laughs> and so they dumped this in the water, and it burned both of both Capucine and Robert Wagner's skin. And Robert Wagner was completely oh under my. it. He was blind and could not see out of his eyes for four weeks. Oh, my like, gosh. I mean, I, I just I just love old Hollywood stories. I mean, if you ever want to hear the most of them, go back and check out our Wizard of Oz episode. Like, Yeah, but I mean, oh, yeah. still, 
uh, who says like we need more bubbles in the bath? I've got this industrial strength foaming agent. Perfect. <laughs> and they didn't test it out on anybody unimportant. Well, you like know, you know they're saying yeah. it burns, and someone is in the background saying suck it up. <laughs> yeah, Blake Edwards is like it's okay, it's okay, just a few more shots. <laughs> yeah, and then um, the other thing that I thought was uh, interesting is just the. The fireworks are fireworks. That's that that's awesome pyrotechnics actually. And again, in an indoor environment. So good job. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking they must have specially built this set in order to be able to survive fireworks like that, because nobody's building a villa like that that could they could resist having a scene shot I this way. I don't know. It's a great point. I I assume you're right. I don't know. It's a great point. I don't know what kind of candle this is. <laughs> Chat, any other th- so Nathan covered a lot of the soundtrack specifically, but uh, did you have any other music comments to add? Like did you want to mention the Fran Jeffries, not Princess Dalla singing number by chance? That that's the closest thing I think I'll ever get to Jedi Rock and Return of the Jedi, where it's just so jarringly out of place and infuriating to me that I'm just you've made such good decisions up to this point. Why this? That scene saved the movie for me. I was beginning to get bored, and then that. That's came that's why like, they oh, did it. This is great. There. Well, I'm I'm glad that worked for you and probably twelve <laughs> other people. But uh, this this aggravated the cranky old man over here. And yeah, it, Chad, how do you how do you deal with the Marx Brothers, by the way, then? Because the Marx Brothers, while they have short run times, shorter than this movie, in the middle of the comedy, they they insert singing. Yes. Uh, and music into it. How does that how does that go down for yeah, you? It's just like Beavis and Butthead. It's annoying. I don't like it. And then and then Clouseau is attempting to join the dancing is just completely inept and awkward about uh-huh. everything. Everyone dancing in great. this movie, they weren't so much dancing as having seizures. Like this one scene, it was the only person in this movie that could dance. I, I liked it. I liked it, but I, I didn't. It doesn't serve the plot. I will. I will totally give you that. It is a break in the action. It's a two-hour movie. You could cut it and the, you know, the the runtime. But this movie moves so fast, as I mentioned earlier on. I'm okay with just enjoying it somehow. Uh, Fran Jeffries is just very captivating. And you are right. Having yet another Italian slender, attractive woman in the mix of things, it's confusing. Well, our, yeah, our Italian fans are all gonna write in. What are you saying? We all look alike? No. No, we're... (laughs) (laughs) We're saying that Hollywood may have hired a type. very much so. (laughs) But Blake Edwards, to your point, just said, I don't remember why we put it in there. It it did halt the story, but it it reeked of, like, United Artists or some big studio production telling them not to, but knowing that they worked with the Mirish Brothers and the producers, it's probably not the case. So it's odd that the director, who had so much control over things, kind of said, I don't remember why we did that. Well, if you don't remember, you probably shouldn't have. So, yeah, this this is a movie that has a little bit of an identity crisis problem. Really, it's not not. I, I shouldn't say problem. I, sh- I all all I mean is that it starts off with what feels like it starts off with a once upon a time title card on top of this th- this scene happening in Lugesh, and then you have a cartoon at for the opening credits of the Pink Panther. So it all feels very very much like a children's animated film for a little while. And then it transforms into what is actually a fairly adult Yeah, it's, comedy. T- it's titillating. Like the, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. And so I, I don't mean identity crisis, but 
multiple personalities, let's say. And it's 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 fun how it plays with them all, but it is it's also like, huh? What were you going for here? This is entertaining. I, I think it's everything. checking all boxes that I like. I just like they got they got so many of the things that I like, as you guys have mentioned. Like yeah yeah you know just... it's, somehow you can take really beautiful women and kind of the sexy scene in the fireplace but you can also add looney tunes and slapstick comedy and put them in amazing locations and there's senses of uh, crime and jewel thieves and complexity and all in a moving fast pace and and well-made movies with good camera work all of a sudden it's like i like all of these things and you're right they don't normally go together but it, it's working for me there was such a good decision brilliant decision how do you make a beautiful woman lying on an animal skin rug funny put the Put a ridiculous Again, expression on the tiger and just have yes. her clutching it. Again, if if you write that line, how does it look to someone reviewing the script? So she's gonna lie on a tiger pelt and talk to it sexually, <laughs> and she pulls it off. She does. <laughs> I think Claudia can say a lot of things this that is... come off as sexy, though. I think uh, I think she's that, that's her ability. So she, she sells makes it. it happen. Yeah. It's, uh... It's yeah. Amazing. Now, are you guys ready for some superlatives? Absolutely. MVP, Chad. I'm going with David Livin, Sir Charles. I really. I root for the bad guys. Well, he would. He would, he would. He would. He would be happy with you then. Maybe it is his movie then. It is his movie. Darn it! I was enthralled by his performance. Every scene, he just had my attention. I was listening intently. So maybe I'm one of the ten that he's juggling. But yeah, he. He had my interest. He is charming and funny. He makes You're it right. Movie. That, he, he does both things very well. Nathan, MVP. I'm going to once again call out Henry Mancini for that wonderful wow, score. Wow, you, you really like this, this music uh, then. MVP for the composer. Oh, I really do. Wow. I really do. I, the, the wonderful chords, the colors. Oh, well, then, so uh, Plaz Johnson was the name of your, that tenor saxophonist they brought in as well. So, uh, yes. Yes. Um, yes. All right, uh, I'm going to go with Peter Sellers. I'm surprised I'm the only one, but definitely definitely going to go with Peter Sellers. Uh, th- you go in thinking you're the supporting secondary character, and you come out breeding an entire franchise of movies where you're the star and springboard your whole career. So gr- I'm glad uh, Peter Ustinov walked off the project. And don't feel too bad for Ustinov. He landed on another movie and ended up getting an Oscar for that. So everybody turned out just fine in the end a movie that peter sellers was supposed to star in and dropped out small world oh i didn't realize that 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 the small world then wow so happy endings everywhere for a very complicated process yeah no best supporting actor chad i'm going with capuson i thought she just did a magnificent job with simone she was sneaky she was underheaded her expressions were just fantastic as you could see panic setting in but she's trying to remain calm i thought she did a great job great choice yes nathan best supporting i'm going to take the sir charles Lytton role for this with david niven i think <laughs> and i put this in best supporting actor here and i think the reason that it comes off that way is simply the fact that he is out of the picture for a lot of the movie towards the beginning so you latch on to the Clouseau character, even though that's really not the main character. But by the end of the movie, David Niven has taken over and made it his own. So I feel like the script is 
trying to take it away, and Dave Niven's just desperately trying to <laughs> make. This is my movie. This is my movie. Yeah. And and doing yeah, a great job. I feel job like of David it. Niven's gonna come back and haunt you now for best supporting. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I mean, this is one of those cases where I, I had to give it to Mancini. So. Uh, I see what happens. Yeah. So, and I'm gonna be with Chad on this one. Cap, you've seen for all the reasons that he said she exhibits a lot of humor, and it's an era too. I want to call this out. There's a lot of really funny women in Hollywood today who I think coming to my mind who would just do great in a role like this there aren't a lot of roles like this out there necessarily women especially in comedy are often relegated to very supporting type roles and while this is obviously the supporting actor that i'm selecting here she holds her own and she she anchors certain scenes and very funny scenes so she's also elegant and she's very um seductive and beautiful and but she's got the humor she's got the acting chops to go with all of it and just like you said with claudia cardinal selling things I think this this is sold by Capucine because to me one of the funniest typologies of humor in this is the constant hilarious juxtaposition for how adoring Peter Sellers is in the role of the inspector to this wife who's way out of his league and everybody kind of knows it and it's, and it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> so yes, <laughs> un- super unattractive guy with this hot wife and everybody else just scratching their head is always a thing that kind of. That that's always going to make me laugh a little bit. That there's always gold to be mined from that. So, hidden gem, Chad. It's so hidden I can't even find his name. But the old man during the chase scene who just stares at this bonkers scene <laughs> and goes back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just his expression of he's just exasperated by it all. He just calmly walks, gets a chair, and sits down with no firm expression it's hilarious i love that guy i have got to think he's almost like shell-shocked by what he's seeing it's it's just so out of his out of what out of his understanding and he's just like oh my gosh so this is it i've gone crazy and he just goes and sits down and doesn't cross the road (laughs) is this your pick as well nathan no i actually for my hidden gem other than i'm going to make a terrible joke here and say the pink panther but my hidden gem is actually the tiger pelt because the char- the the expression that that was bearing that whole scene and the amazing job done of making it into a, a third character in that scene was just amazing and then to to just top it all off wrapping the tiger's arms around the princess in order to drag her out was just a piece of physical comedy that i just don't understand how someone came up with that and someone else said yeah that sounds good let's do it and then it yeah, turns I was out not prepared for the arms to be used as the rug like he starts to grab it and he wraps it around again just brilliant yeah i was like oh man if you drag it out by the tail that's just unreal i'm gonna go with martin miller the for my hidden gem he plays Pierre Luigi, the photographer, in the beginning. There's something mischievous about him that's just like, like he's orchestrating this fake photo shoot, and when the mobsters come in, like he kind of covers it up for him enough, like kind of plays dumb, and then he's like, he's like, I'm an artist, you know, you can't rush me. He's like, and then he just hands him more money. He's like, I'll rush. Yes. So yes. he's got excellent timing. He's only in there for a little bit, but my goodness, what a good, what a good moment. That's the, this is what the hidden gym is made out of. Good job, Martin Miller. I do like your pick a lot, Chad, on that one, so I'm glad you picked that one. I, that, that didn't occur to me. That, that, that's a good one. Recast. If you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place, who's it going to be, 
Chat. I'm going after Robert Wagner here, and I have the feeling Ooh. you guys liked him a whole lot more than Ooh. I did. I felt, yeah. I felt he got outclassed by the, the other actors in every scene, so I'm replacing him with someone that could hold his own better. Robert Wagner was younger here, too, so I'm going after Rock Hudson. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good actor for a good actor, but uh, I, I like Robert Wagner. That hurt a little bit. Nathan, who are you recasting? You know... As much as Claudia Cardinal did a great job as the princess, as I started my review of this movie off with, I think I think you've got to go with someone from Bollywood from this era. And there were lots of options. Pick one of them. Let's get let, let's make okay. this make sense. Yep. And I'm not shocked you go that way. I'm going to a theatrical improvement. Everybody's so good in this. Artoff is a guy who works for sir charles he's kind of his henchman if you will to stage the dog kidnapping to light the rope on fire he's the support man the getaway car driver etc i i feel like he's in the movie enough he doesn't have a, he doesn't have a lot of speaking lines but i just feel like there's there's some humor to be gained from this role it's not a big role but i'm gonna go with dom deloise he's only 27 he's not really made it through the movie so he could actually take a smaller part like this i could just see him answering the phone and sticking his foot in his mouth revealing like giving updates on the princess and being like who is this what <laughs> he was great in 12 chairs so yes absolutely get dom deloise i like that yeah so dom deloise is in for Artoff. sorry guy tom tom Ren. best shot chat talked about it before but the long still shot of the hotel bedroom where you see simone and jock's feet open window and the door to the rest of their suites it just lingers on this frame it's comedy gold and it's just something unique that you don't see wonderful that is a great choice there uh nathan what's your best shot i just want to call out the shot that i mentioned earlier that is taken outside the two hotel bedrooms looking through the windows into the staircase where you just get that amazing sense of space and what's happening and everyone's pointing every direction about what they're going to do and simone just trying to make sure that charles gets hidden from clouseau but then george is involved and everything just even though it's visually not all that interesting in a way you could argue the amount of technique that is happening and, and going into yeah, that there scene was is a just lot wonderful. Of good technique in a comedy movie, which is rare. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, again, Blake Edwards, yeah. good job, man. I mean, seriously. For my best shot, I'm going to go with the two-sided safe robbery as well, which is where uh, Sir Charles and George are both in gorilla costumes, much like what Chad picked. And it's a stationary shot. It's one of the many stationary shots. Uh, but the, the camera then turns kind of showing the gorillas looking uh, from one side to the other and then it turns back and it's kind of you see what's happening on either side of the fireplace or the safe I should say at the same time and that's just so good and it reminds me we we brought it up here a little bit earlier about the Marx Brothers there's a real Marx Brothers quality to this and uh, yeah I'm so glad you mentioned that I was afraid we were going to go this entire podcast without mentioning that scene it's so funny the precision to get all those mimicked movements mirrored is just, it's really impressive. Yeah. Yep. Now, best scene, chat. I've talked about it again, but I love the chase scene. Gorillas and convertibles, knights and bugs and jeeps, zebra just riding through at the end. Just 
chaos. Your hidden gym Italian man in the street? Yes. He's watching his own acid trip unfold, and he's just got a front row seat. It's great. It may be the single greatest chase scene of all time. (laughs) All right. Uh, That's a great choice. Now, Nathan, what's your best scene? I'm going to double down on that scene. That is such a funny chase scene as he the the old man gets halfway across the road and you know what this is probably just something i should watch it just kept going one of my comments was apparently there's no end to my amusement with this gag like it was a solid 10 15 minutes of the movie and it just isn't that long yes well from the street to the chase and back and forth yeah it was really long okay yeah and it ends with Again, this I'm sure it was partially budget driven, but in kind of a Jaws effect, the sound effects of all the cars crashing and then the camera slowly turns towards where the cars are going to be. And you've heard this crazy thing and you're imagining, oh, man, what's going to what's it going to be? It's going to be a crazy wreck. And it is the most comically perfect shaped they all crashed at the same time, right in a, you know, 90 degrees to one another, and they're all in their costumes trying to extricate themselves from their cars. It's... Tucker's gesture legs sticking out the top, yes. waving is my favorite part of that. So, yeah. Uh, by the way, we haven't mentioned him. He was awesome, too. So, my best scene, I'm going to go earlier in the movie. It's about a third of the way into the movie. When Sir Charles discovers the hotel room door that connects his room to the Clouseau's room is locked and he's stuck, he initially gets under the bed and then the inspector comes back and it doesn't stop at just that. Then George comes in uh, for Mrs. Clouseau. The, ins- uh, the inspector leaves because George phones him on a phony call and then Sir Charles has to dive under the bed as George comes in for Madame Clouseau. Before she can get rid of him, the inspector comes back realizing it's a phony call. And so now George is hiding in the bathroom. The Sir Charles is under the bed. And then later on, she gets him out of the bathroom under the bed because Sir Charles is rotated behind the curtains. He leaves on the balcony. He falls off trying to go back to his room. He lands in a huge snow pile in a great comedy moment. Like he pulls out of like this giant snow drift in front of all these proper British people talking and stuff like that. And he's just like, good night. And then walks off and just everything about this is amazing. It's, this is Marx Brothers to the maximum again. It reminds me of, and I'm, my Marx Brothers is, is blurring together, but there's a balcony scene in a French apartment, and they're just rotating from wanting to not be seen. So Groucho and Harpo are trying to not be seen. They're constantly rotating around this apartment, moving beds and furniture around. And just like that, you know, Peter Sellers walks in, he steps on a flower vase that George brought, and he's like, that's weird. That wasn't there earlier. And, you know... <laughs> He just keeps getting distracted just as he's about to put it together. Champagne going off in the bed. All kinds of stuff is happening. This is the ultimate escalation for me. And it's great camera work. And it's great performance work. And this is the one where I actually think Capucine is anchoring this whole scene. She's she's great. Absolutely, yeah. Best wardrobe, Chad. I really love Sir Charles's robe. And I know we talked about it earlier, but I... In my mind, it conjured up images of young Hugh Hefner. I have to think that's what they were going for. I think so, too. Yeah, Nathan, best wardrobe. The gorilla costumes. This is something that 
was just amazing. So that scene where they're going around the safe. But before that, there's also the nesting dolls effect of they pull off the, the ambassador's gorilla costume's head and find that it's not the one, not the thief that they thought it might be. But instead of discovering a human face, they discover another gorilla head, and then they have to take one off from there. So those costumes were great, and it almost makes me want an alternative version of the scene where we find out that the ambassador was also after the gem or something, and so you end up with three gorillas in, mm. in, in a scene. Just really, really good. Yeah, costumes. yeah, because you're right. The ambassador is the one who's in the gorilla costume who should be in the gorilla costume, and then obviously George right. and Sir Charles have them as well. Uh, I'm not really clear where Sir Charles got into the gorilla costume because he came in in a cat burglar getup. Yeah, was there like a a clearance sale for gorilla costumes and everyone who didn't have a costume immediately before the party and didn't have a police force's budget to buy costumes? I mean, if you start questioning when someone bought wholesale terrible gorilla costumes, this whole movie is all about We just can't. Yeah. I know, I know. I'm going to go with Claudia Cardinal's dress, the black dinner dress. That, by the way, everything she wore was awesome. Same with Capucine. Like, the, the wardrobe was amazing. This was amazing. Uh, yes. But uh, Claudia Cardinal's black dress that she wore at the dinner scene, and which later she wears on top of the tiger. That's uh, that's quite stunning. Really like that. And uh, shout out or nod to the, the white glove with the, the P on there for the phantom. Yes. Mm-hmm. So change one thing. Chad. Y'all liked it, but the dance scene has got to go. It's just, it's indulgent. It <laughs> broke up the pace of the movie for me. I was ready to keep laughing, and it's like, no, we're going to have an Ed Sullivan dance hour, and I don't appreciate it. So Chad does not like Fran Jeffries, who, by the way, when you look at the casting, she's listed as Greek cousin. So, yep, yeah. Nathan, I think I know where your change one thing's going to go, but uh, do you want to hit us with it? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll hit you with it. You either got to recast the princess to be accurate or you got to cut the, the Lugash thing. But you know what? That's boring. So I'm going to propose an alternate version of how this franchise could work. Because what if it was a series of movies in which each one was a tricky name for a gem? So there's the Pink Panther to start, and then you have a different colored diamond that is the plot to the next movie, and it's like some... I don't know, blue something or other. And you have a series of movies of different things that Clouseau is protecting various gems, always failing. And finally you get the uh, Avengers Endgame for the Pink Panther franchise as you have all the gems come together and get stolen at once. I'm eager to find out where this series goes from here, to be honest with you. Oddly enough, this one is not on the AFI Top 100 Funniest Movies, but the second movie in the series called A Shot in the Dark is so in theory people hold it in even higher regard than this movie which for me that's hard to say i might be tipping my hand here a little bit so i'm i'm eager to follow ahead and see what happens with a shot in the dark i think you might know what my last watched will be for next next episode (laughs) then so my change one thing is going to be there's a bit of a lull when sir charles and the princess are together by the way that's a sexy scene like even for a comedy like that's that's good yeah. Oh, yeah, it would be fun to check on the inspector 
at some point. I don't want to totally break the mood. It's not doesn't have to happen while they're on the tiger skin carpet. It can happen before the next morning because that also happens. We go a long run without seeing the inspector here, and I want to just see him doing something, taking a phone call, having a conversation. Because all he needs to do is be in a room with two people walking around. They start bumping into each other, talking about each other, sticking fingers up each other's nose. It, it's it's electric. So I just need a little bit of Peter Sellers in that. I think it's around that one eighth mark, or maybe that uh, somewhere in there. And the movie, I, I, he just goes a little too long without seeing him. So that's fair. Best quote, Chad. Wasn't there another gorilla in a Rolls Royce? Yes, probably a rich uncle. <laughs> just, <laughs> just that quick. It was very Monty Python-esque. Nathan, this might be cheating a little bit. Melio Stasera, which is the name of the song sung in the ski lodge song scene so uh sorry chad i appreciated this song i'm glad somebody did yeah and my best quote's gonna be this plays off that hilarious component of where capucine's very beautiful and peter sellers isn't is this goofy character and they're together and at one point he goes he's leaving he goes at times like this i wish i was but a simple peasant and uh, Simone <laughs> Simone goes, it's times like this that make me realize how lucky I really am as he's leaving. So <laughs> it's, just, it's just so funny. Similarly, I, I really do like when Peter Sellers kicks over the flowers as a runner up when he goes, there is something very strange going on. <laughs> yes, I, he was great. He was great during all of that. Chad, did you like the end of this movie? I did. I think it, working out for all parties and Clouseau, who you just feel bad for, who's trying to be this lover again, I'm comparing to Pepe Le Pew, he finally has the female attention that he wants and he knows, hey, I'm going to serve a little bit of time, but I'll get out and I'll have a ton of female fans. And what we don't know from his perspective, but what David Niven's character, uh, Sir Charles, is telling us, it's going to get out, get out quicker than that. So it works out for everyone. Nice. Yeah. I also, I also didn't, I wasn't sure how I felt about it the first time, but then the second time through, you're right. Everything seemed so fun about it. I was only left with the question of why did the princess feel so necessary to let Prince Charles, or sorry, to let Sir Charles get off. That was my only thing that I was a little bit like, eh, what, what was her motive there? So yeah it's a comedy it would have been it would have been hard to continue with her character arc in more detail but you can definitely put some headcanon in here that you know this this gemstone is so important to her it's the last thing she has from her father and the and and it also represents sort of what her country used to be to her and she's finally able to use it to do some good for some people who she finds sort of that that she's interested in so it doesn't it it doesn't bother me that she helped them out there you you can definitely fit some some things in based on the movie it's it's not a cliche end right the ending yeah yeah no it's not at all um i i will say i i like everything about how the the plot ends it and all that works i think possibly the reason that it doesn't quite land perfectly is because the last Clouseau line where he just, he's asked, so how did you do it? And he thinks for a little, and he thinks for a bit. 
think there could have been a funnier line than it was very difficult. It wasn't easy. Um, it, it wasn't easy. Oh, I yeah. think the face. I, I think the I, face I is like, more important than the line. Uh, well, and that's and that's the thing. I, I I let it off because the face acting he's doing as he's saying it is just great as he's realizing all of his uh what what's about to happen to him and what he thinks his future is about to be it's 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 very funny face acting but the line itself i think run uh land lands nice a little all right it is that time now chad on a five-star scale with half-star intervals what would you give the pink panther from 1963 i'm giving it four and a half i don't want to be a dog with a bone but throw out the dance number and it probably goes to five it's hilarious. I enjoyed this movie a lot. Wow. I I'm, I'm need to return my Fran Jeffries CD that I just bought you for your birthday then because, I mean, this is uh, clearly I've picked a bad gift then. No. She did a great she job. Just... It's nothing against any of that. It's just out of place. Okay. Nathan, what did, on a five-star scale, what would you give The Pink Panther? I'm going to have to give this a three out of five stars. You know, it's a, there's a lot of good comedy stuff in here. There's a lot of... You know the plot is intricately made. The, the the shots are great. I just there are there are things that I, I I know I should put them in a little box and say this is the 60s, but there are things about this movie that kind of bug me, that uh that that, that are going to take two stars off for me. Okay, okay, and uh, I'm going to join Chad in the in the 4.5 star wagon. It's it's rewatching very well for me already, and uh, I picked it up for five dollars off of a used out of a used dvd store and it was great a wonderful investment and uh i will be showing this to a number of other people so i've enjoyed this one it's the slapstick so many things i like so yeah excellent pick yeah now do you guys want to help me pick a movie for next time nathan that sounds great let's do it option number one the notebook from 2004 by the way these are all going to be you know romance movies option number one the notebook from 2004 a poor yet passionate young man falls in love with a rich young woman giving her a sense of freedom but they are soon separated because of their social differences option two dirty dancing from 1987 spending the summer in the catskills resort with her family francis baby hausman falls in love with the camp's dance instructor johnny castle option three titanic from 1997 a 17-year-old aristocrat falls in love with a kind of poor artist aboard the luxurious, ill-fated RMS Titanic. You know what? I grew up with this amazing CD of French horn music, and starting that CD was a cover of a song from one of these movies, and it just sticks in my head so strongly that I am very happy that we are reviewing Titanic. Da-da-da! Such a good song. All right. Thank you so much, Chad. Thank you so much, Nathan. Remember, all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at the show at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com, all one word. Producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contributions will make the show better. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chad? Truth hurts. Maybe not as much as jumping on a bicycle with a seat missing, but it hurts.